Welcome to Book Lunch, Journeyman is the podcast. I hope everything sounds okay uh, out there in internet land. Um, this is, um, uh, that's sort of the theme song I wrote about a year or so ago for, for, uh, um, for this show. And I kind of sometimes like to play it when I'm sitting in my chair, this side of the, of, of the, of the home. I do shows from, and uh, today I'm going to do something a little bit different in the sense that I'm going to discuss um, a more complex work of nonfiction. Um, and I, I, I hesitate to describe it um, as such. I don't know. I would call it historiography rather than history. Um, I've always been much more interested in historiography. I mean, I, when I back in the in the eighties, eighties uh, through early nineties, I studied. You know, I had some mentors and teachers in liberal arts, and the the thing at that time, of course, with the with the new theories and all that, and certainly people like Hayden White, who we'll get I'll be getting to in a second. I have a clip of Hayden White who passed recently, um, and uh, these were a group of folks who similar to Foucault, who I've been talking about recently on the, on the podcast, who were trying to, I guess, to put it in a, in a simple way, hopefully not simplistic, simple, uh, do something very different. Look at the past in a different way. Look at the present in a different way. Um, and there's a lot to be said about that. But today's book is Moved by the Past by Elko Runia, who is a scholar uh, from the Netherlands. And this book is about 10 years old, maybe more. Is it, I think it's from 2013. So it's uh, very much a, a, a book of its moment in that moment coming out of Europe. Um, it also has some, some, some uh, ideas in it that could certainly apply to today um, as, we'll, as, as we'll discuss. Um, so I wanna, um, I'm not quite sure really um, how to proceed again because of the difficulty of the book. I'll try to make it a little bit more um, approachable, relatable, even, dare I say, accessible without losing um, the uh, eloquence and scholarship and, and, and interest of what his project is. So this is the book, Moved by the Past. Now, um, I'm going to start off with something a little bit more um, uh, visually interesting rather than me sitting in this chair, even though this is where I do my, some of my shows here and I do music here and things. A um, little clip of Hayden White at the end of his very end of his life um, discussing, he's in a forum with responding to Runia, actually, at Berkeley University, you know, in 2000 and. I don't know, is it 12, 13, something like that. Long time ago, right? And this is a, uh, this is to get his taste of um, Hayden White, who was a great, great scholar in here. This up here, there's Hayden White. That tears in the fabric of the, of history. Is that it? Or tears? Tears and tears. In the fabric of history. Mm. Um, Michael Roth says, a lot of people live with their past without any problem whatsoever. Uh, a lot of people, in fact, the majority of people live with their past 
uh, or come to terms with it and get on with uh, the work, uh, everyday work of uh, getting to the cocktail hour uh, or whatever your uh, telos is for the day. Uh, now, um, I think we should have to draw, I think that in a field like history, which knows the practitioners of which know what they're doing. They know how to do it. They know what counts as a good job and what does not. In other words, it's a profession. It's been professionalized. In a field like this, you don't get many revolutions. Ever so often on the periphery, someone will come in from literature and say, oh, you know, no. uh, uh, Silas Marner really tells us more about the 19th century then, and uh, therefore oh. literature. Or now that's that's kind of a um, an inside joke on himself because Hayden White was one of those innovative intellectuals that brought in a lot from literature to the study of history. I mean Hayden White. Um, I have his book here. The content of the form. Now, this is a we care a lot today about content, uh, pro and con. And content is used a little bit uh, indiscriminately um, to describe all sorts of things. Um, you know, uh, folks that watch my show regularly will know that I'm in part a formalist. I don't think there's a word for a contentist. I don't think there's. I don't know what that what identity would be of somebody that privileges content as opposed to people like your host who are form, form oriented. Um, and of course it's a, it's a, it's a, it's not quite a accurate, uh, always accurate a distinction, but it's useful in certain respects. But Hayden White, you know, was starting to write uh, meta history. That's his book, Meta History, which I read back in the eighties. And he was talking about history, but talking about irony and tropes, tropics of desire is one of his books and talking about romance and talking about, you know, that there's the four things, there's comedy, there's satire, there's romance, you know, that the, all these, these, these interesting things he was writing. Now, contrast Hayden White's project to today, where we had Peter Tertian and those like him who want to make, putting this in quotes, history, a mathematical scientific enterprise to the core and you read their stuff, you know, it's just graph after graph after graph and, and number crunching and this, you know, population analysis and all this stuff. And, and, um, and that's kind of been in for some time now. Um, very different than the aesthetic orientation of a Hayden White or Elko Rooney. And, I, you know, there's a picture of him here. He's, he's, um, um, I think we're going to dive into this book now. I don't know, again, when you're dealing with a text like this, even though it's a thin volume, if you know some of the books I've been doing recently have been kind of long, they're big, they're books like this, you know, they're like, you know, they're, 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 they're what they call doorstop books. And this is a thinner volume, I suppose. Um, but um, I'm trying to, uh, well, he starts off his book with um, 10 theses. And I debated, you know, far and wide this week. Um, 
whether to even list all the theses, you know, and it may sound kind of maybe dull a little bit, but not, you know, and I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to get to all 10 of them. And there's things I want to talk about that may or may not relate to his. And I, I appreciate him starting his book. It's a very, it's very, um, Runia is a novelist. I haven't read any of his novels. Imagine that a guy writes this, he's a European scholar, and then he's all, all along has been writing novels. Get this, he's also a practicing psychologist who's, who's all of his clients are medical doctors. So he's dealing with medical doctors and surgeons who are dealing with life and death issues and he's counseling them. I think he works for Amsterdam or some, something. I don't know. I mean, it's, so that, so in this guy's biography, you know, this is not an average history writer. You know, if that's his job description, his day job is, is writing novels and treating treating PhDs, treating surgeons and, and, and um, uh, you know, physicians, you know, uh, for, their, for, their, for their mental and um, uh, woes, things like that. Therapists, that's interesting. But in any event, um, he finds time to write books like this. So I'm just going to run through these theses and then I'm going to get to something more, a little more romantic, a little more eloquent, a little more um, interesting than the theses. But I think it's something to chew on, you know. Um, first thesis there really exists a fundamental opposition between two diverging approaches to the past, but instead of quote unquote history and quote unquote memory, the poles of this opposition should be called in quotes, history and in quotes, commemoration. So he's laying out first thesis that, you know, this is gonna happen in this book, commemoration, monuments. There's a brief discussion in this book where he talks about how uh, in the 1970s, there was a renewed interest in the history of Nazism and fascism. Um, and why, it, why that interest skyrocketed, you know, Primo Levi's writing and um, movies like Lena Wertmuller's Seven Beauties and, and the movie Shoah by Claude, the documentarian Claude Lans Lansman and all this, uh, the, the TV show Holocaust with, with um, Melanie Mayron and Vanessa Redgrave from 1979. There's all this, um, this uh, uh, interest, artistic uh, interest in a re very recent history of the 30s and 40s, you know. And he speculates in this book that it ha they had to be then. It wouldn't have happened 10 years later in the 80s. It would have been in the 70s and why that might be. That connects to this. It was kind of like, let me go on these other theses. Some of them are more interesting than others. Second thesis, commemoration is trying to answer the question, who are we that this could have happened? So, you know, bad stuff happens to us sometimes, right, in a way. So, or some of us do really bad things. And that's a sensible question. Who are we that this is befallen us? You know, very interesting. This is a very light book, I should say. Uh, light reading here. I was actually I was actually reading this book uh, in public, and um, I got uh, far too curious people around me looking at this book and wanting to wanting to say, "Well, well, Mitch, what are you reading?" And I really didn't want to discuss it. I had work to do, and you know, they always buttonhole me. And I'm like, "Well, this is the book," and so you know, they always make a snarky, uh, slightly aggressive uh, joke about my reading habits. The fact that I'm reading this and not reading. Oh, I don't know. I read a lot of stuff, but you know, I'm not reading something more and more um, 
uh, more um, in or something, I don't know. Um, where are we? Thesis two, commemoration. Third thesis, coming to terms with the historical trauma is the result of answering the commemorative question, who are we that this could have happened? He goes on to say, this doesn't mean that coming to terms with an historical trauma should be the goal of commemoration. Rather, coming to terms with an historical trauma is the free byproduct of a sustained attempt at commemorative self-exploration. That's interesting. So commemorative self-exploration. So I, I'm always thinking of memorials. Of course, the, the, uh, the Maya Lin Vietnam, I always come back to this because I think it's such a great work by Maya Lin, the Vietnam. And of course, there's, there's been, been one since, of course, 9-11, et cetera. Uh, he talks about that in here, um, examples of trying to erect these, you know, physical, physical, um, uh, artifacts or physical things to, to deal with certain emotions, you know. Fourth thesis, it gets more interesting. People start to make history not despite the fact that is, it is at odds with, yes, destroys the stories they live by, but because it destroys the stories they live by. So his fourth thesis is saying that people want to destroy the past in some sense. He, he pretty much comes out and says that. They want to say, we don't like these stories. Let's throw these stories in the bonfire. Let's create new stories. Interesting. That's his fourth thesis. So, you know. Um, fifth thesis. The more we commemorate what we did, the more we transform ourselves into people who did not do it. So again, he's having a little fun with this. I think he's being a little more, oh, you know, I, I acted, but I did not act. In other words, you know, we, it's, kind of, it's kind of like a, it's a concept Thomas More discusses. Thomas More says that the more you do something, the less you do it. Or it's similar to like trying, trying to, um, I suppose, uh, um, the, more, the more you force something, it does, it's, it's precisely you, you're guaranteeing that it won't ever happen because you're forcing it. It's a little bit like that maybe. And he's not, you know, he's not passing any judgment. He's not saying don't commemorate. He's just saying that, you know, he's saying, he says it very clearly. He says, the more you commemorate, you are looking at yourself as a witness, rather a witness no longer in participation, no longer so it's sort of creating a distance more positively, I guess this is a psychologist of him, so you can get a handle on things in a way. And so you can look at it and then be, be done with it and move on. It's a very American, Americans love to move on. They're very future oriented. They're like, well, look at the past to, to um, see the past in a correct way and then, and then go forward. It's, that's not, uh, Runea is, is not, not really his thing. I wish I should say really, but that's, that's, uh, that's it there. Um, the more we try, people do not do it. Um, sixth thesis, the focus of our desire to commemorate is prefigured by generational issues. So prefiguration is a word from Hayden White. Hayden White uses it a lot. And Hayden White, for Hayden White, it's pejorative. It's sort of prefiguration is like fill in the blanks history. It's prefigures like cycles. We have downturns and upturns. That's a classic prefiguration. Or, you know, you have um, democratic societies and oppressive societies. And you, 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 it's kind of like the weather, right? Seasons, you kind of go in and out of these things. And these, these are ways of trying to see patterns or, or create patterns that may not be there and may 
may fail to capture adequately what really happened, right? So prefiguration. But he says it's generational. So I guess that's we Xers, the boomers, millennials, Gen Z, Gen Y, silent, you know, issues between generations. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. You know, it's part of it. Um, I, you know, um, that's what he says. Um, seventh thesis, commemorating from scarcity of memory springs from ontological homesickness and is a manifestation of a desire to get into contact with the numinosity of history. Now that's a mouthful. I'm gonna read that again. <laughs> ontological homesickness and is a manifestation of a desire to get into contact with the numinosity of history. I mean, that's beautiful. I mean, that's a thesis. Right? You know, there's no, there's no, you know, I mean, you're not going to see, you know, uh, uh, um, in a popular biography of John Adams, the, the, or not the composer, but the politician guy, the American, uh, or uh, Stephen Sondheim I actually ordered a, the new biography, of Stephen Sondheim. That book will not sound like this. Won't have language like that. And it'll be more, you know, Sondheim, you know, went to his lesson with Oscar Hammerstein and he's, you know, I'm trying to work out this chord or the lyric or what did you do there on flowery drum song? And, you know, and how do you have the character express uh, lost love or something? You know, that that's kind of the thing. And Sondheim, Sondheim loved mathematics. He was a math fanatic. You know, it's interesting to think about that, uh, you know, in light of his work. He I actually think he said he almost went into mathematics and had he not written West Side Story or something. That's kind of kind of strange, huh? Um, eight thesis. We're almost done. We're almost to 10. Every now and then we create new paths for ourselves by committing fresh original sins, by fleeing forward in horrendous, sublime, in short, historical quote, acts of people, unquote. He says, this is a rather distressing thought. Can it be that the First World War was a consequence of having consumed the future with which the French Revolution had provided us? Interesting. Ninth thesis. Commemoration is not as Platonists like Nora think, and he's, he's referring to a, an historian uh, uh, named, named, named Nora, wrote a book in the 80s. I don't want to get down that rabbit hole of who that is. Um, it's not as Platonists like Nora think an epiphenomenon of some basic fault of humanity, but the necessary concomitant of the exquisitely human faculty of externalization. Now, this is the thing I was saying just a minute ago. You look at yourself on the outside, you externalize to get a handle on something, I think is kind of, you know. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a great, um, um, really great uh, scholar, Vico, Giambattista Vico, writing in 1720, wrote a book called The New Science in 1720. That book was a major influence on Isaiah Berlin, and he comes up a lot in this book. And um, one of the things Vico talks about is... Um, the, the uh, difference between truth and certainty and truth is sort of like, I don't, you know, I may not do, do, uh, I mean, do disservice to Vico, but it's sort of like something like, well, Vico was responding to Descartes. He didn't like Descartes, like a lot of folks didn't then. 
thought Descartes was faulty, right? Um, and, what, and, and part of Vico's, um, well, Vico, here's Vico's take on message. Vico says that humans can understand humans, but not much else. It's sort of like we can understand, you know, as he puts it, things that we made because we made it after all. And he said, you can kind of, uh, you can kind of get a handle on that. But he says, as far as the rest of her trying to go beyond that, that's, Vico says, you can't really do that. That's not as possible. And that's the kind of interesting um, boundary that he, that he created. And he was very influential on many, many scholars and, and still today. Um, and when he, when he talks about science and new science, he's talking about responding to, you know, Newton and all these things happening. That's a very much a 17th century, late 17th century, early, you know, 1680 through 1720 kind of thing, you know, what they were interested in back then, you know, those cats. Um, so we finally come to 10 and 10 is by burying the dead, we create not our future, but our past. So we're always trying to create the past we want or the past we'd like, either ethically or aesthetically. You know, that's that's one reason why there's so many damn reboots in popular art. Reboot after reboot, because, you know, somebody doesn't like the original version. You know, it's like that original version doesn't speak to younger people today. We must use the same title, but, you know, make the movie over and over and over again. You know, I'll, I'll, it amazes me. I look, I, look, I look up a movie, um, I don't know, I just said the other day, I look up a movie from 1987. Of course, it's been remade twice. I don't remember what it was. And there's a 2013 version, 20. So in popular entertainment or fiction or, or, or dramatic art, that's a similar function. That's a way of trying to create a past that's usable by some of us. Now, it doesn't speak for me necessarily, but a lot of people. It's like, well, you know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the show Wicked by Stephen Schwartz. And I, you know, I had this long passage in a blog post that I excised where I talk about, you know, the relationship between Bob Fosse and Stephen Schwartz because of Pippin. You know, Stephen Schwartz wrote Pippin and Godspell and how in Wicked, he's kind of wrestling with the Wizard of Oz and trying to tell a, a more feminist or female-centered um, story uh, about, about witches and wicked and all that. And there's that project. I don't know what made me think of that, but actually the, the Stephen Schwartz and, and, and um, company in creating the pop musical Wicked are creating a past. They're creating like a different Wizard of Oz in a way or a, a different uh, vision of, of adolescence or something or this or that. That's creating, it's not really so much about really necessarily as of yet the future, it's what past do you want, you know, kind of. And of course, I don't want to be too um, uh, too irresponsible about this because after all, the the stuff that happened in the past is, past is fixed in terms of events and facts, you know, and those things aren't up for, uh, hopefully aren't up for dispute or um, uh, playful re rearrangement. But of course, there's interpretation, and that's that's the past that he's talking about. But I, you know, I said those ten pieces, and I want to I want to go to um, a passage in the book that I think is is really I love this. There's things in this book I do not like. I don't like his. He goes on and on about Leninism and Lenin. You know, the diaries of Lenin, and I really have don't have a lot of patience being not about politics at all. I mean, we're, we're still, this is an aside, we're still suffering from the Bolshevik revolution and utter mistake of that today with Putin. It's like it continues, you know, even though it's already 1913, it's like we're still in that, in that, in that nonsense, that, that uh, 
I think that that, you know, unleashed upon the world. So no, I don't, but you know, I mean, he, he, he thinks it's interesting. Anyhow, I want to put all that aside. I want to go, go into the, into the, um, into the thing here. This is from a chapter called Presence, and this is, here we go. It's rather tragic. We want something badly. We know perfectly well how to make what we want so badly, yet we forbid ourselves to act upon our knowledge and keep wandering in the dark. Clearly something has gone wrong. In this chapter, I take the position that on consideration, it is not meaning we want, but something else, something that is just as fundamental, something that outside philosophy of history in society at large is pursued with a vehemence quite like the vehemence with which philosophers of history believe only meaning can be pursued. For it is, I think, not a need for meaning that manifests itself in, for example, nostalgia, retro styles, in the penchant for commemoration, in the enthusiasm for remembrance, in the desire for monuments, in the fascination for memory. My thesis is that what is pursued in the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and having a diamond made from the carbon of your loved one as a memorial to their unique life in the reading of names on the anniversary of the attack on the World Trade Center in the craze for reunions and in a host of comparable phenomena is not meaning, but what, for lack of a better world word, I will call presence, being present. He's distinguishing that from meaning. He, and then there's a long, there's a long, um, uh, he, there's so much in this little book. It's thin. You would never know it. But there's a lot in here. He, go, he, he goes into detail about metonymy as opposed to metaphor. And of course, you literary folks, if you are literary folks out there, lit, lit crit people or English scholars, et cetera, will, will of course know metonymy metaphor. Met, metonymy is part for the whole. And he, and he used the example of dealing in a hospital, which he works in a hospital, right? So he's like, the gallbladder in 203 um, needs, to, needs to have a, um, their temperature checked, you know. Of course, gallbladder is a stand-in for, you know, Jane Doe or whoever it is that they're the patient. And there's a lot of examples. The so suits upstairs don't like my project because they're they're too conservative and, and they're they're offended by its um, I don't know they're offended by that it, you know that it's too gender gender radical and they, they think it'll alienate Peoria Illinois or something. You know, I'm just off the top of my head just saying that these those are the suits the bad guys you know that, uh, instead of saying you know the executives you know you see the suits and the part for the hall and 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 there's a lot of discussion here in met metonymy met metonymy but um. He goes on to say, this is interesting, presence in my view is being in touch either literally or figuratively with people, things, events, and feelings that make you into the person you are. All right, I'm just going to sit here. I know it's not a lot of the book, but that, Runia wrote that. And I got through all these 10, the 10 theses and I get to that. Presence. Presence is a breathing, a whisper of life and reality into what has become routine and cliche. It is a fully realizing things instead of just taking them for granted. 
By presence, I do not mean the fulfillment of a wish to stop time and preserve, respect, and honor what you happen to possess. He doesn't mean that. So what does he mean? What does he mean? The need for presence and the drive behind all brands of commemoration is a veritable passion du real, as Alain Bedois had called it, has called it. It is a desire to share in the awesome reality of people, things, events, and feelings coupled to a vertiginous urge to taste the fact that awesomely real people, things, events, and feelings can awesomely suddenly cease to exist. Presence being in touch with reality is, I believe, just as basic as meaning, whereas meaning may be said to be the connotative side of art, of consciousness, of life. Presence is the denotative side. Both meaning and presence are antithetical to another drive, the drive to be taken up in the flux of experience. But again, opposition to this drive, however heartfelt, doesn't necessarily have to take the form of a struggle for meaning. It may also be a quest for presence, or as in a work of art, an attempt to create an endurable and enjoyable intersection of both meaning and presence. I, you know, um, he, uh, and he talks about discontinuity as kind of this norm. You know, there's always this discontinu discontinuities going on. And um, discontinuity might best be conceived as our being surprised by ourselves. So there's a phenomenon where you know he he, he uh, uh, in this book describes how we're taken we're taken surprised by something. We're shocked by this. These events happen. These public events. These notorious events. These infamous or famous events, right? Known events. Must discuss water cooler discussion events. These things happen. And we say, well, we're blindsided by these events. We take our magnifying glass, we look at the events and say, well, see, this was the most natural result of everything that came before. We knew it all along. Now, this is a kind of a little bit of a self-deception, I, I think. You know, it's kind of like creating a narrative where you sort of make something that seems strange and say, well, you know what? We've been lying to, our, to ourselves. We should have seen this coming. Rooney in this book is actually criticizing all these different different ideas. Actually, he's not. He's saying he's saying that when we do that, like good historians do this, when they reconstruct these things, that that, that that in order to do that, they're evading other inconvenient facts when they do that. You know, and you know, I don't think I'm doing justice to his book, but I'm trying. Again, bear with me. I read the ten theses, and I've got the I've got the some of the better part of the prose. Um, you know. In here, and, and 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 you know, it's kind of like a, a reconstruction. Where, um, well, here you go, Timothy Snyder. I think I think um, when Timothy Snyder finally finishes his new book on Baklav Havel and Ukraine, that's the book I want to do the most on this this book launch. I'm not more than more than even Runia. It just hasn't come out yet, and and Timothy Snyder is really busy in Ukraine now. He's actually involved in the war effort over there and it's it's you know he's he he's an amazing you know bloodlands i highly recommend bloodlands more than on tyranny actually 
Bloodlands is actually one of the best books on those on those years of Stown and Hitler of any I've, I've ever read. Timothy Snyder uh, says two interesting things. Uh, in uh, last week, he said this. He said he thinks that values are real, like rocks are real. And some wag in the audience said, "You don't? Do you mean Led Zeppelin rock is real?" You know, kind of just to be snarky, you know, but he means like the rock that Bishop Barkley kicked that's on the ground that, you know, truth and beauty and freedom and all these sort of very ephemeral things are, are not illusory, but actually are really real. That's a bold thing for a popular um, intellectual to say. And he said that. He also said, what else did he say? He said a couple of things. Anyway, I don't want to spend too much time on Timothy Snyder, even though he's, he's worthy of our, of our time and, and consideration. Um, but, you know, Timothy Snyder is always his big bugbear, his big, um, uh, his big uh, pet peeve is um, a kind of determinism or inevitabilism. You know, the idea that things are just that we're just machines and what you put in is what comes out. And there's no chance for a change. Or he says, he says that that's the most dangerous focus idea. It's a, he, I think he calls it a nihilistic idea and the idea that, you know, I think that Timothy Snyder, Snyder wants to make a claim for freedom. Well, he's very specific because he actually likes positive freedom and, and, and you know, the notion of freedom, Ukrainians making their own freedom, you know, and so on. That it's not a deterministic thing that, you know, tomorrow could really be different from today if we want it to be sufficiently different, you know, and that it's up, you know, and it's not, it's not like a, you know, a situation, it's not like a tube of toothpaste, you know, you push the tube and toothpaste will come out, you know, it's just, uh, that's kind of it, you know, that, that our lives aren't like that. And I, I, I kind of like that insight from, um, from Dr. Timothy Snyder. I'm trying to find some other, other parts of this book that might be um, interesting. Um, our own best enemy. It's one of his chapters that we can be our own best. He talks about Tolstoy's War and Peace. Um, you know, because Tolstoy, Tolstoy's War and Peace was such a big influence on Isaiah Berlin because Isaiah Berlin, the hedgehog and the fox, you know, he, he says that Tolstoy... There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an inner contradiction. It's a wonderful contradiction in Tolstoy between wanting to be scientific and truthful about history. Um, at the same time, his, it, Tolstoy's feeling that the humans are mysterious or again, non-deterministic, not predictable, thus making, making us um, a little bit um, more slippery than a mechanistic science, you know, science of history. And that, that's, of course, that's a theme, big theme in War and Peace. Um, and so I just wanted to mention that too. And, and so and he's also, he's one more thing, he's responding to uh, different kinds of histories of the past. So he says there's these two groups of historians. Most historians, historians seem to believe that such a thing as the past exists. Of course, if you ask these historians straight away, they will admit that no, the past is just a thing of the past. It doesn't, and that's as it doesn't exist, right? 
The next moment, however, you can hear them talk happily about their, or at least probable, relationship with the past. That's in quotes. And there's no escaping it. If you define yourself as having a relationship with something or someone, you thereby indicate that you believe that that some something or that person exists in a way that is on par with the way you think you yourself exist. So that's, and then he says, there's another group of historians, a much smaller one, I believe, and a group in which philosophers of history are heavily overrepresented. Folks like this guy, Hayden White, I think, who assert that the past does not exist. The historians belonging to this group maintain that the only remnants of the past that survive into the here and now are traces and inscriptions, papers and documents, pictures and footage, bytes and pixels, the venerable things in short that are designated by a remarkable metaphor, the metaphor of sources, source material, so snapshots. Um, yes. And then he goes on to say, both these groups are wrong. They're both wrong. They both, these people think this, but I'm here to say, Rooney is here to say, ah, oh, that they're both, it's yet something else. And that, that sense of, um, I'm trying to create an original book. We're moved by the past. Um, that's what drew me to this book. Um, it might be one of the shortest books I ever cover on this book lunch, I think. Well, no, I'm actually, uh, well, maybe there's a couple I've done that, that, that um, the book I did about Wanda and Barbara Lodin was really short. It was a really beautiful, short, small one. But this, this is one of the, but, but he packs a lot of, a lot of um, punch into <laughs> this book. So I don't think I have much more to add to, to these proceedings. I know that um, October's upon us. Um, I will be... 56 in a few weeks, which is insane in a way. And, and, and perhaps it's, um, perhaps it's something to, to welcome. Um, and, uh, of course we lost Diane Feinstein this week. Uh, and it's funny, I was, uh, been reading some things about her, some eulogies and in a way that connects to this book that's people will commemorate her, Years of Public Service and Harvey Milk and and um, queer history in San Francisco and all that. That's a that's a that's a that's a major major um, major thing. Um, but I'm going to be talking to a novelist this Monday and recording that. I'm looking forward to that. Um, and I'm going to. Stop there. I think I've done what I can with Munia, at least in the at least in the uh, context of this particular discussion. And I hope all of you have a decent weekend. And I'm sure I forgot many important things that I prepared for this book lunch that I um, forgot to say. <laughs> but that ugh, that's what I got this think cup for. This um, yeah. So I can think about it. But thank you for your time. And I hope uh, you got something out of it. And a um, little something, at least. And um, have a good weekend. And I look forward to future episodes. 
immensely. And in a little way, I even look forward to my own birthday. So thank you. Uh, I'm tired.